Our message this morning comes from Genesis chapter 20. These are the words of God. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you shall do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who were with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this word to us that deals with your servants Abraham and Sarah from so long ago, but which are so applicable to us still today. Teach us, instruct us, give us wisdom, give us gladness, show us your glory, make us strong and vibrant in your name and to your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Abraham and Sarah are continually set forth for us as examples in the New Testament, and they are in fact in what has been called the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. But that does not mean that they never fell short in their faith. And whenever they did fall short in their faith, 
the scriptures shows it. The only perfect example we have of a life of faith is Christ himself. Now, Christ did not have faith in a Savior. He did not need a Savior. He was the Savior. But he most definitely did have faith in his Father and in his Father's word and promises. And he was the only one who lived a perfect life of faith in the Father. And so Hebrews chapter 11 sets forth all these different examples of faith from the Old Testament saints. But then as it goes into chapter 12, it brings all that in conclusion by saying, let us therefore run with endurance the race that is set for before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now the Apostle Peter shows us how this works. He develops this theme in his first epistle in chapter 1, starting in verse 3. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. In other words, Being born again, regeneration by this Holy Spirit precedes faith, not the other way around. He has begotten us again to a living hope. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. God keeps us because we being fallen are not capable of keeping ourselves just as we were not capable of believing on the front end in and of ourselves. God had to intervene. He had to act. And for us to be sustained and to persevere in the faith, God has to keep us. How does he keep us? By his power. What does his power use to keep us? Faith. He keeps us by his power through faith for salvation. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Now, trial in the Bible is a word that literally means to be squeezed. It's like when circumstances begin to press in on us and they squeeze us and it's uncomfortable, oftentimes painful. It puts us under pressure. And he says that these various trials, though, are for a godly purpose, that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold to God, though tested by fire, that's the trials again, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the picture that Peter is painting here is of God as a goldsmith who is heating up gold so that it liquefies and the impurities, the dross, rises to the surface. It floats up to the top so that the refiner can skim it off, ultimately leaving nothing but pure gold. Now, in this picture, the pure gold is genuine faith. It's those attitudes, it's those words, it's those actions in our lives which can only be explained By faith, that is the pure gold, the genuine faith. The fire consists of the trials, the things that put pressure on us, hardships, difficulties, afflictions, persecution. The fire of those trials reveal 
genuine faith on the one hand and the dross, the impurities, on the other hand. So that over time, our faith is trained and it is strengthened and the dross, the pollutants, are skimmed off. They're removed by God through the process of sanctification. Now that, in a nutshell, is what we see in the lives of Abraham and Sarah from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis chapter 24. We see God causing Abraham and Sarah to be born again to a living hope. We see God keeping them by His power through faith. We see God using trials to train and strengthen their faith. And we see God also causing their sins and weaknesses to rise to the surface so that they can be skimmed off through sanctification over time. And that is why in some passages we see from Abraham and Sarah genuine faith shining through, beautiful as gold. While in other passages we see Mostly sins and weaknesses rising to the top and compromising their faith. And the latter is definitely what we find in chapter 20. I mean, when you think about it, you've got over 12 chapters of Scripture devoted to the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Do you think that if Scripture devoted over 12 chapters to our lives... Do you think maybe some sins and weaknesses might show up along the way? Do you think there might be some cringe moments in those 12 chapters devoted to our lives? Well, when the Bible sets forth for us examples of faith, it doesn't, it doesn't touch them up with makeup. It shows genuine people, God keeping them through faith, them walking by faith, God working with them and developing them so that it becomes a true source of hope and strength and wisdom for us. So in chapter 20, this is one of those passages where we're mostly going to see, with Abraham in this case, we're mostly going to see weakness and flaws rising to the top. There's faith there, but this is not one of those great shining moments. This is not one of Abraham's best moments in this chapter. And the first thing that should strike us in chapter 20 is that we have seen this scenario before in chapter 12. In both of those chapters, Abraham goes into a land where there is a king and fear gets the better of Abraham. And he ends up really imitating Adam in the Garden of Eden by failing to shield his wife from danger. Instead, Abraham gets his wife to act as his shield by going along with his lie that Sarah was his sister. That's what Adam did in the Bible. He did not place himself between his wife and the serpent. He was very content to let his wife be between him and the serpent. So, When I say that Abraham was uh, telling a lie in in chapters 12 and 20, I realize that his statement that Sarah was his sister was half-true. Here's the problem. A half-truth presented as the whole truth is an untruth. 
And that is especially true when the part that is not stated is the only relevant part. The fact that she was his half-sister was entirely irrelevant to anything that was going on. The fact that she was his whole wife was highly relevant to everything that was going on. And that is what was concealed. Now, Abraham had seen God intervene and deliver him under similar circumstances in chapter 12. Here, he should have trusted God. He should have beseeched God to shine forth, to rise up, and to protect. Then he should have placed himself between Sarah and the potential danger, trusting God to provide. But once again here, because fear gets the better of Abraham, God has to intervene to protect Sarah, to protect the marriage, and to protect God's plan of redemption. Because remember, God's plan of redemption, the big plan, also his specific promises to Abraham and Sarah in particular, depend on the birth of the promised son, Isaac, who must be born to Abraham specifically and Sarah specifically under circumstances in which it is clear that the pregnancy and the birth are humanly impossible and therefore are the result of the act of God, the miraculous act of God to produce this miraculous conception and birth because Isaac is going to be a living picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be this way. All of that is at stake. Well, once again in chapter 20, God strikes the king and his house, basically all his people, And this time, uh, with Pharaoh in chapter 12, it was a plague. Here, it appears to be some form of sexual impotence or dysfunction. We know all the wombs are closed. There's no conception that can occur. Further, it appears that Abimelech is rendered incapable of sexually approaching Sarah. You see that in verses 6 and then verses 17 and 18. And once again, God makes the king aware that this malady that is resting on his house is owing to the fact that Sarah is Abraham's wife. Now, in chapter 12, we aren't told exactly how God communicates that fact to Pharaoh, but it is clear that Pharaoh got the message somehow. He knows he's a dead man unless he returns Sarah. In chapter 20, God actually converses with Abimelech in a dream, and this is a remarkable conversation, starting in verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And Abimelech understands that he's talking about Abraham. Now, Abimelech converses with God, in this dream, and he pleads innocence of action and blamelessness of heart. Verse 4, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? In other words, this is very similar to Abraham's words on behalf of Sodom back in chapter 19, when God was going to destroy Sodom. 
And Abraham begins to intercede and say, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he says, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? And God says, then I won't destroy it for the sake of the 50. And Abraham keeps whittling it down till he gets all the way down to 10. And God says he will spare the entire city on behalf of 10 righteous. Of course, as we know, there were not 10 righteous in Sodom. And so Sodom was destroyed, but God still did uh, uh, bring Lot and his family out. He did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. But it's very, it's very similar what Abimelech is saying here. Will you slay a righteous nation? In verse 5, did he not say to me, talking about Abraham, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, He is my brother in the integrity, that is the blamelessness, that's what the Hebrew word means, in the blamelessness of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And the remarkable thing is God agrees with Abimelech. Verse 6, God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity, the blamelessness of your heart. And then God makes it clear by sending this malady upon your people, it was not an act of judgment. It was an act of mercy. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. In other words, it is in mercy that I've sent this malady upon you and your people to keep you from sinning against me because I know that you did what you did in ignorance, in innocence, and in blamelessness. But God makes it clear that Abimelech must still follow through doing the right thing. He must restore Sarah or else God will now send real judgment. Verse 7, Now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet. Now notice how this is the first time in Scripture we have the word prophet. It means that Abraham is in a sense like we saw with Sodom. Remember when when the Lord and the angels were starting to move towards Sodom, God knows what he's going to do, but he turns to the angels and says, Shall I withhold from Abraham what I intend to do, seeing as I have called him? to command his house to walk before me in righteousness and faith and so forth. And you see what he's doing here. He's basically now taking Abraham and and calling him to a higher level of maturity, bringing him, as it were, on his counsel. And so when he starts telling him what he's going to do with Sodom, he's basically, it's like a father with a younger son or a daughter telling them what he's planning to do with something and wanting to hear from the son or the daughter what they think. Now, it's going to appear to the son or the daughter in that situation that they are kind of educating their parents. They're educating the parent. Well, we know that's not what's really happening. By feigning a certain amount of ignorance, the parent is educating the child. And that is exactly what God is doing with this interchange with Abraham about Sodom. It seems like Abraham is educating God. God's not learning a thing. Abraham's learning a ton. 
So this is part of what it means to be a prophet. And so he says that Abraham is a prophet and he will pray for Abimelech and his house that they will be restored. Otherwise, God will bring judgment on them all and they will die. Now, it's interesting. Abimelech and his men respond in the fear of the Lord. Verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. There's no sign of flippancy here or unbelief. They they understand what's going on and they have the fear of the Lord. Then Abimelech speaks to Abraham. And again, this is a very remarkable conversation because Abimelech, the Gentile, presumably the unbeliever, appeals to Abraham in righteousness. Verse 9, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. What did you have in view that you have done this thing? This is a remarkable appeal. And Abraham responds to Abimelech. And the amazing thing is that Abraham, compared to Abimelech, the Gentile, apparently unbeliever, Abraham sounds lame compared to Abimelech. Verse 11 Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. This is not faith shining through. Abraham's been through this very circumstance before and seen God act miraculously. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother, leaving out the fact that he's been through this exact same scenario before. And the lie did not work out. It blew up in Abraham's faith and God had to intervene, but he did intervene and he delivered them. In other words, Abraham's words here are not a justification. And it's almost like the more Abraham talks, the worse it gets. Nevertheless, we see Abimelech again respond in righteousness. And it almost seems like he's following the words of the Lord Jesus to go the extra mile. If you're compelled to walk a mile, then you go an extra mile. Not only does Abimelech restore Sarah... He showers Abraham with gifts, all kinds of herding animals. And unlike Pharaoh, who militarily escorted Abraham to the border of his land, basically, don't come back. Abimelech says that Abraham is welcome to stay and to dwell anywhere he wants in Abimelech's land. Dwell on the best of the land. And he gives an enormous sum of money, a thousand talents of silver, to make it publicly clear that Sarah is pure. Nothing has happened here. She is untouched. Verses 14 through 16. Now the phrase right at the end of this passage that says, thus she was rebuked, that word rebuked, that confuses us. Uh, and well, it should because it gives the wrong picture. The Hebrew word there literally means vindicated 
or justified. In other words, by this sum of money, Sarah is vindicated publicly. And it is known to everyone that she is pure, that she is untouched in this uh, situation. So when all is said and done here, I think I'll speak for myself, see if you agree, kind of find myself identifying with Abimelech in this situation a little bit, don't you? And to find yourself identifying with his words and his actions and, and what he's doing, almost find myself kind of drawn to him. Now, I know Abraham. Abraham's the father of all believers. We know him. He's known. This is not his most shining moment. That's true. And so, But it doesn't make us re- forget who he is and what an example of faith he is. But just talking about this moment, Abraham is the Lord's prophet. God upholds and confirms his office here. He has Abimelech seek Abraham to pray for him. And it is in answer to Abraham's prayers that God answers and heals Abimelech and his house, verse 7 and 17. So God, God does nothing here to take Abraham down. But there's a deeper level here that God is speaking on. Because if we look strictly at the behavior in this passage, who is the Israelite and who is the Gentile? We've seen this before, and we're going to have to get used to this, of God speaking to us on multiple levels. Remember, we looked before in Second Samuel chapter 11 where David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. She is married to Uriah, who ethnically is a Hittite. Now, Uriah is one of David's soldiers. They are out in the field besieging a city. Bathsheba is pregnant. David, this is not his shining moment, that is for sure. He is not acting out of faith right here. He wants to cover up what has happened So he wants Uriah to come back from the field so that he will sleep with his wife and the baby will appear to be Uriah's. This is all a cover-up. He brings Uriah back for some kind of a pretense meeting with David. But then Uriah will not go home because he says, my brothers are in the field sleeping on the ground. I'm not going to go home to my house and sleep in my bed when my brothers are sleeping on the ground in a field of battle. He won't go home. And so then David brings him in and starts giving him wine, thinking I'll get him to drink and feel merry and so forth, and then he will go home. But Uriah still doesn't go home. And the whole picture here is that Uriah drunk is better than David sober in that passage. And what we start to see here, given what David then tells his general to send Uriah up under the walls of the city, which you never did, um, so that he's killed. And, of course, to cover it up, there's other men totally innocent who are killed, too, who have nothing to do with the situation. But what we start to see is one of the ways that God teaches us, God upholds David's position as king and as prophet. But in that circumstance, Uriah is the Israelite 
And David is the Hittite. And that's one of the ways that God is teaching us. Now, Jesus enunciated the operating principle behind this in John chapter 8, verse 44, where he tells the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. Well, how does Jesus know that? Because that's who you're imitating. Because your father was a murderer from the beginning and you are trying to kill me. That's how I know whom you're calling daddy. That's who I know, that how I know who you're imitating, who you're reflecting at this moment. And so one of the things that God will show us is that somebody, they may be his child. God may hold them. They may be called to a particular office, but that doesn't prevent the fact that in a certain situation, they are imitating the wrong person. They are reflecting the wrong person. Back in Genesis chapter 16, you remember when Sarah grows weary of waiting on the promises of God, she's still barren, she still cannot have a child, she starts to trust in her own devices. So she comes up with this idea of basically turning her maid Hagar into the ancient form of a surrogate mother. She will give her to Abraham as wife. She will have a child. Sarah will be like the the maternal um, the matriarch of the family, and this will be in a sense uh, Sarah's child. And so Sarah's going to help God out here. He's going to help him out keeping his promises. But then when it very predictably blows up in Sarah's faith, she begins to afflict Hagar, the Egyptian. And then she is driven away. And then God himself appears to Hagar and ministers to Hagar. And so we saw the fact that even though Sarah is a hero of the faith and is an example to us, In that situation, in Genesis 16, Hagar, the Egyptian, is the Israelite, and Sarah, the Israelite, is the Egyptian. That's one of the things we're we're supposed to pay attention to so that we can learn from it. Here, Abimelech is the Israelite, and Abraham is the Gentile. Because we see more genuine faith, it would seem, more genuine faith coming out of Abimelech in this particular scene than we do from Abraham. Now this methodology of who are we reflecting, who are we imitating at any given moment does not change our status as a child of God, a son or daughter of God. But it is one of the ways that God brings us forward in sanctification. Through this whole principle of who are you imitating right now? Who are you reflecting right now? Is a way that God holds up the mirror to us. He held up the mirror to Abraham. He held up the mirror to Sarah. He held up the mirror to David. And said, take a look. Who are you imitating? Who do you see? Well, God is my father. I follow God. Here's the mirror. Take a look. Who are you imitating right now? Who are you reflecting? So that is one of the ways that God sanctifies his people in the scriptures and also does us. We get that mirror in the word of God. We read this kind of thing. And what we're supposed to do is God holds up the mirror to Abraham and says, take a good look. Who are you reflecting? We're supposed to realize 
Ooh, I've done that. I'm saved in Christ. I'm a child of God in Christ. But I haven't always imitated Christ. There have been moments when I'm imitating somebody else. And as we see this in the Word of God, God's doing the same thing with us. He's, he's teaching us, hold up the mirror and tell me who you're imitating right this moment. Who are you reflecting? So we see God doing that with Abraham. So bigger picture, though, we need to remember, even though chapter 20 was definitely not Abraham's finest moment, we still see God showing faithfulness and mercy all around. We see God showing faithfulness and mercy to Abimelech because here's this this Gentile. We have no evidence of previous faith in God, but we see God acting in a way so as to evoke faith in him. God prevents him from sinning. He appears to him. He speaks to him. We see Abimelech and his men Responding in something certainly that looks like the fear of God, something that looks awfully close to genuine faith. I mean, we aren't told, but it looks awful lot like genuine faith, don't we? But also to Abraham, who again, he's not the real hero of this particular episode. But again, God is using trials like this Even when his children stumble some, they don't walk perfectly. He is using this trial to train and strengthen Abraham's faith. Even though fear has gotten the better of Abraham before, God knows that Abraham is still susceptible to that thing. And that's the way we all tend to be. We tend to have certain besetting weaknesses, stuff that go deep within us. It's really hard to change that stuff. It's really, really hard. But God in His sovereign mercy puts us in situations from time to time that causes that to rise to the, to the surface so that He can deal with it, so that He can train us, so that He can strengthen us. And so we see it, it's not because God hates Abraham that He put him in this situation. It's because he loves Abraham that he put him in this situation. And he trains Abraham's faith. And he strengthens Abraham's faith. He brings the weaknesses to the surface so that God can sanctify them and and make Abraham even more and more of a son to the living God. And may he do the same with us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.